John 12, 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that he had heard, they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is coming. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. I'm not much of a movie person, but there's a kind of movie I really like because it catches me off guard and genuinely surprises me. The best example of this, in my opinion, is 1999's The Sixth Sense. You know who the main character is from the beginning of the movie. You follow him carefully throughout the whole thing. But there was one important detail that you misinterpreted right at the start. And so taking in everything else through that lens, you're wrong about reality for the whole movie. When this is done well, it's suspenseful because of that misdirection. You weren't lied to. Nothing you needed to know was withheld. But you were deceived. Because sometimes multiple things can be true. At the same time, what you're looking for has a big impact on what you see. The Sabbath day ended. Our text this morning records the events of Sunday, the first day of Jesus' Passion Week. 
And by all appearances, everyone seems to be riding high. This may be one of the rare gospel scenes that when read, you're inclined to take it in with a smile. The king of glory coming into Jerusalem. So far in John's gospel, Jesus had received honor only from individuals or small groups of friends. But here, he's getting something that is much closer to what he deserves. He is the king of glory. The gates of Jerusalem should be open to him in praise and honor. The whole world should come out in praise and adoration to greet him. This large crowd, it says, is the combination of two crowds. One coming with Jesus from Bethany. Those are the many who went down there to meet him and Lazarus. And as we read before, some of these came to saving faith. It's understandable why they are exuberant. John says in verse 17, they're still, they continued to bear witness about what Jesus had done. They're riding high. It shouldn't be the case. But recent converts often display more enthusiasm for Christ than those who have lived under the covenant longer, don't they? Growing up in the church or growing old in faith shouldn't so drastically dampen our enthusiasm for what God has done. If anything, it should increase. Church life may become normal and routine, but the steadfast love and mercies of the Lord are new every morning, and we should experience them as such with increased gratitude over time. This crowd from Bethany merges with another exuberant crowd, those who are coming out from Jerusalem. They were in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and that crowd would have been huge. Just a couple decades later, the Jewish histories we have said there were two and a half million people in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, most of these would not have had saving faith in Christ. But that didn't stop their exuberance because as they saw it, he was here. The Son of Man, the Messiah, has come to set them free. All of this has the symbolism of a victory parade. That's why the crowd take palm branches and wave them in the air, just as they did in the feasts of Israel to express and celebrate the joy of victory. In more recent history, palms reflected nationalistic victory as well after the success of the Maccabean Rebellion. When Simon and his forces drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem, the people waved palm branches to celebrate their freedom. And during during the Jewish wars against Rome, when they minted their own coins and refused to use the Roman ones, they put palm branches on those coins. At Passover, the waving of palms was part of the halal, the daily celebratory reading of psalms. Worshippers would hold these handheld crafts made from palms, and then they would wave them vigorously when the psalm reader got to Psalm 118.25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Save us. And they would wave the palms. Save us is what the people were shouting at the gates of Jerusalem. Hosanna, save us. Us, and they wave their palms in excitement. Everything that's happening here is joyful, celebratory, and it's explicitly messianic. A few folks from Bethany are rejoicing in God's spiritual salvation, the Messiah who has brought them to God and freedom from sin. 
But nearly everyone else in this crowd is rejoicing that Jesus, the Messiah, has come to overthrow the Roman rule. Especially at Passover, it's understandable that the crowds would have deliverance on the brain. What does Passover celebrate? The freedom God gave his people from their oppression in Egypt. The whole scene seems so fitting that now on the anniversary, on the memorial of that great event, God brings his new deliverer riding into town in victory. Jesus was able to raise Lazarus from the dead. That kind of power must come from God. And that's exactly the kind of power that could free them from Roman oppression. The only people feeling deflated are Jesus' enemies. They said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Their plan isn't working. This is the way you talk when things aren't going your way. It's a bit of exaggeration, of course. They were already working on the Jesus problem, but now they see something has to be done more quickly. He's whipping this crowd into a messianic frenzy. Who knows what they'll do? And who knows what the consequences from Rome will be? After all, the whole world is going after him. This is a good place to remind you that more than one thing can be true. And that's why things aren't always what they seem. By this, of course, the Pharisees mean that everyone, without exception, is going to Jesus. That's obviously hyperbole. But our gospel writer, John, loves irony. And he often uses that word world differently. Throughout this gospel, he's used it to mean people who are in rebellion against God, regardless of where they're from. Maybe not everything in this story is quite as it seems. It's true, Jesus is the central focus of the narrative, no surprise there. And he's in control of the events before us, but he's not riding into Jerusalem in victory. He's delivering himself to the slaughter. The Pharisees are trying to scheme and plan about when Jesus can be arrested, when Jesus can be put to death, but they're not the ones in control, are they? As one scholar puts it, Jesus forces the members of the Sanhedrin to change their timetable so that it will harmonize with his timetable and with the Father's. If this were one of those movies I like, this is the part where we would start to go back and reflect on the clues, the ones we missed before, and see how they should have tipped us off to what was really happening. Everyone is so ecstatic, so sure that the moment of victory is at hand. Everything looks like a victory parade, and it's clear who the winners and losers will be. But on closer inspection, the palm-waving crowds have got it all wrong. Notice that as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he rides not on a war horse like a conquering hero of old, but on the colt of a donkey. He's telling you in this that he's not here to bring war against Rome. He's here to bring peace, peace of soul and of mind for those who receive him. From the other Gospels, we learn that Jesus orchestrated this arrival himself, every part of it put together by Christ according to the Father's will and in conscious fulfillment of Zechariah 9. Now, when the New Testament quotes the Old, there are two things to look for. 
One is the combination of multiple Old Testament passages into what seems like one reference. The central point of this quote, the your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt, that is from Zechariah 9. That's the main text we're supposed to think about. But the opening of the passage, fear not, daughter of Zion, is not. It's from Isaiah 40. And that's common when the New Testament quotes the Old. And so we're to look carefully at what was removed and what was added in its place. This passage in Zechariah opens with a call, not of peace, but a call to rejoice. And John removes that and replaces it with Isaiah's call to peace. And when you look at the context of Isaiah, those words of peace are given to the one who brings good tidings to Zion. Jesus is not bringing war or even the victory that these people are seeking. He's bringing tidings of good news, tidings of peace. The second important consideration for Old Testament quotations is that all of the context matters. Even when only a verse or two from the Old Testament is referenced, the New Testament author isn't just bringing in that verse because they think it's interesting. They're pointing our attention to the whole context of the original passage. I'll lean on a New Testament scholar who summarizes the Zechariah 9 context for us in three points. Listen to these three things that if you go read Zechariah 9, you'll be able to pull out. One, the coming of the gentle king is associated with the end of war. Two, the coming of the gentle king is associated with the proclamation of peace to the nations, extending his reign to the end of the earth. And three, the coming of the gentle king is associated with the blood of God's covenant, which sets the prisoners free. This will be quite a letdown for the enthusiastic crowds. They want war. And Jesus brings tidings of peace. They want freedom from Rome. And Jesus brings the blood of the covenant, release from the guilt of sin. They want a king, but a gentle king riding on a donkey's colt is not what they had in mind. As this story moves forward, something else is out of sorts from our original celebratory expectations. Because if things are as they at first seemed, shouldn't Jesus be the most exuberant of all? He's being received in Jerusalem as the Son of Man, as the Messiah. Yet, what's really happening to him, if you're looking closely, is agony of the soul. First, because of what he sees and considers as he rides into Jerusalem. This insight is most vividly presented in Luke's gospel. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Seeing that great covenant city, seeing the desires of the people before him chanting Hosanna, Jesus weeps. He weeps for their desires. 
He weeps for their covenant breaking. He weeps for their hardness of heart. He weeps for their blindness because even now as God is revealing himself to them, they do not have eyes to see. Later in the passage, we see that Jesus' soul is also troubled by the agony that awaits him in the cross. He does not doubt the Father's goodness or the rightness of the Father's plan. He's not contemplating any option but obedience. But he is taking seriously the horror of his Father's wrath. He's taking seriously the grim reality of death. If death wasn't horrible... Jesus wouldn't have been troubled. If Jesus wasn't completely committed to obedience, he wouldn't have been troubled. But it's the combination that causes such agony in Jesus' soul. One pastor writes, the horror of death and the devotion of his obedience were meeting together. The hardness of the path and Jesus' complete commitment to it. Give his soul great trouble. Yeah, things aren't as they first seemed. In fact, it looks like the only ones who are going to get better than what they expected are the religious rulers. They are going to get what they want. Through the betrayal of Judas, they will get Jesus away from the crowds. They will arrest him, conduct their sham trials, and sentence him to death. It's the exuberant people who are setting themselves up for grave disappointment. And Jesus, who's facing agony of soul. Because the religious rulers are going to win. Looking more closely, we see what's real. The religious rulers are going to win. Except several things can be true at the same time. And that's why things are not always what they seem. That's where this story moves from intriguing to divine masterpiece. Not by some earthly writer or director, but Yahweh who is in control of whatsoever comes to pass. Jesus' appointed hour has arrived, not because of human scheming, but by divine purpose and intent. God did not just see this coming. He caused it to be. Christ will be lifted up superficially for his enemy's purposes, but ultimately for his father's purposes. In verse 28, the heavenly voice booms in affirmation of his own glorious plan in Christ. As one man put it, the sound coming from above was a clear indication that the father had heard the son's request. If anyone still refused to admit this, it was his own fault. What's really, really happening, you see, is the Father's plan to save the world. Not all people without exception, as the Pharisees use the word. He will save the world, as John uses the term, people in rebellion against God without distinction for nation, tribe, or tongue. In fact, this is so important to the narrative that only when this great promise approaches fulfillment Does redemptive history move from not yet my hour to the hour has come? This is in verse 20. Don't miss it. These Greeks come to see Jesus. 
These are Gentiles who were likely in Jerusalem because they had already turned aside from the false religions and they had begun to associate themselves with Yahweh's covenant people. Such Gentile believers were allowed to come to the temple to worship, and many did. But they had to stay in the outer courts. They were not Jews. They were not ceremonially clean. They could never cross the barrier into the inner courts. That barrier, by the way, is what Paul tells the Ephesians, is the dividing wall of hostility broken down by the blood of Christ. It's literally a barrier that kept Gentile believers out of the place of God's presence. Jew and Gentile, desiring to seek God, but separated by a wall of hostility, a barrier that only the blood of Christ could break down. And that's why the coming of these Greeks to Jesus is so significant in redemptive history. He's drawing all people to himself. The whole world is coming to him, just as the Pharisees said, and not at all what they meant by it. One pastor says they come just as people come today because the wisdoms of the Greek suffered a shipwreck, failing to satisfy the deepest longings of the soul. All who find the world's religions unsatisfying, the world's answers to never bring peace to the soul, all without regard for race or anything else, gender, wealth, education, all who find it unsatisfying can say, as these Greeks did, we want to see Jesus. And there they will find satisfaction for their souls. But for now, They're Gentiles, and this is Passover. The dividing wall of hostility remains, and so they're unsure whether Jesus should even receive them. And they ask Philip, and he's not sure. So he asks Andrew, and he's not sure. And they both go to Jesus, and they bring the situation to his attention. The world is coming to see you. What do we do? This is the great reveal. This is it. This is the moment that explains everything that was really happening all along. Before this, Jesus says, it is not yet my hour. But with their arrival at this moment, he says, my hour has come. But he'll not yet go to these Gentiles. He'll give his answer through the disciples. That is, if they were to come to Jesus right now, they would still not find the soul satisfaction they're seeking in Christ, at least not in a redemptive historical sense, because Christ first must fulfill the requirements of the hour. He must be lifted up on the cross and taken down into the grave and raised and ascended into heaven. Then and only then will he have provided what the world needs from him. People think that all they need is good advice from Jesus. They think that what they need is wisdom from Jesus or an example from Jesus or in some abstract sense, the love of Jesus. But Jesus himself knew that what they needed was for him to be lifted up. And so he says, my hour has come. And he refers to himself here as the son of man. 
Now, this particular title is most often used either when talking about Jesus' suffering or when talking about his return in glory. And here it's both. Because his suffering and his glory are inextricably connected. Yes, because one leads to the other. Suffering leads to glory. But more importantly, is there a more powerful manifestation of Jesus' glory than his death and resurrection? Is there any greater moment of the glory of God in Christ than when he is lifted up for the sins of his people? The glory that the crowds anticipate is not to be. They lift Jesus up in praise, but their Jesus will be lifted up on a cross. He will die. But the glory the Pharisees anticipate is not to be either. They will not deal with the Jesus problem because as surely as he is lifted up in death, he will be lifted up in resurrection and exaltation. He is, he says, the grain of wheat, which falling to the earth dies and bears tremendous fruit. Brothers and sisters, we are that fruit. The fruit is a great harvest of salvation throughout the world. And in this, he's also judging his enemies. Those who thought that they could judge him and find him lacking, find him worthy of death. The world is judged, not Jesus. And the ruler of this world is cast out, not Jesus. I love this quote. One man said, The world thought it was passing judgment on Jesus most climatically in the cross. But in reality, the cross was passing judgment on them. This is Jesus at his most glorious. And we're in grave danger when we stand in judgment over God. We consider his will and his will to save. And when we measure them by our own standards and judge whether or not we approve, we are in grave danger. And in fact, in such judgments, we are judged. Proper posture is what John has said from the beginning to those who receive him. Not who judge. Those who receive. By receiving, we gain the right to become children of God. Jesus was the illumination of God's will for the world. We receive him, not stand in judgment over him. This is the difference between those who are surprised and delighted by the plot twists of the gospel and those who are surprised and devastated. The crowd's ideas are all wrong. They're waiting on the Messiah who will set them free By virtue of his power over death, they had begun to accept Jesus as that Messiah. You can see in verse 34, they're confused. And they're not confused because they're wrong about who the Messiah is. They say, Christ, he is the Messiah. They're confused because they're wrong about the kind of Messiah God sent. Jesus is not their military liberator. He's the light of the world. He offers understanding of God's will, God's revelation of himself. Notice from verse 16 that it's not until later when the Holy Spirit is poured out that even the disciples see all that God is doing in this morning's events. We need God to illuminate our path. 
and show us what's true. Peter, in his first epistle, reflects on Jesus' passion, and he concludes that Jesus' suffering sets an example for us. Jesus died to sin so that we might live to righteousness. He draws us to himself so that we will follow him. He sends his spirit to illuminate God's word and will so that we will have a path to direct our steps. And of course, Jesus is more than an example. We could never have done for ourselves what Jesus did for us. Yet, because he did give himself for us, we are now able to glorify God with our lives. Jesus died to self, not seeking his own glory, but doing what pleased the Father. Another author writes that the person who loves his life will lose it could not be otherwise. For to love one's life is a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty and God's rights. It's an idolatrous focus on self, which is at the heart of all sin. I guess the question for us this morning is, which story do we think we're living in? Or Whose story do we think we're living in? Are we writing the script? Do we think that we're sitting in the director's chair? Now, don't get me wrong. There are certainly times where we want it to be so. Because God's will for us in this fallen and cursed world includes a lot of trial and hardship. While our home and glory will be glorious, Following the will of God in this life often feels anything but. And Christians, it's okay to admit that. Jesus did. His spirit was grieved by sin and its consequences as he looked over Jerusalem. He was troubled by the approaching cross, even knowing exactly what he would accomplish there and even being unreservedly willing to do it. He didn't look to the cross with happiness and glee. His soul was troubled. Living for God doesn't mean burying our heads in the sand or playing pretend as if the path to glory doesn't lead first to suffering. Living for God does mean obeying God, even more than our own self-interest. What really glorifies God is what we see here. And what really glorifies God is something we can do because Christ first did it for us and in us. We glorify God when we do his will rather than ours. And we can glorify God because Christ did it first.